Father in heaven, we ask that you would be with us this morning as we come together to learn about you. We ask that you'd be with the Sunday school teachers and that you would help their teaching to be, as Moses prayed, like drops of rain, speech distilled as the dew, that's gentle, gentle rain upon the tender grass, like showers upon the herb, Lord. We ask as we proclaim uh, your name and the things that you have done, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I think our Sunday school teachers are here, so if you would go with them to your Sunday schools. So this is part two of two Sunday schools on information and what to do about it. We kind of opened last week with saying that the time we live in is often called the information age. And we looked at a verse from Daniel that we'll come back to uh, about the increase of knowledge and those that would run to and fro and how it is an apt description of the time that we live in with our modern transportation and, and uh, telecommunications. We also looked at Augustine, uh, some of his thoughts, some thoughts from Calvin and Edwards, and we're going to summarize a little bit of that because we're trying to move from information to knowledge and from knowledge to Christian living in, in what we're thinking through here. For Augustine, uh, then, he wrote a book called The Confessions, and it's a work of profound insight. And uh, his word for information, as we talked about last week, is memory. Memory, um, I'm defining it again just so that we understand what it is we're talking about, because it means everything that you usually think about with memory, but it also means more uh, for Augustine, facts, data, it kind of brings in all of those, those different words that we have, uh, experiences that enter through our senses and are stored in our minds, memory. And we talked about, as we move from information, which we're calling memory, uh, to knowledge, how do we get from information to knowledge, Augustine described how we know things. Uh, as knowledge is recollection, or the recollection of memories. And according to Augustine, thinking is the process of herding a flock of memories together and putting them in order. So then we went from, from that to looking, yes, at Scripture, but also at the, the helpful work of Calvin, who, in writing the Institutes of the Christian Religion... Uh, is, has created a work of precise organization. Uh, it's been noted that Calvin wrote the Institutes uh, pretty early in his ministry. He wrote his first version of it. He spent the rest of his life expanding it and organizing it, not really changing it. Um, this is Dr. David Calhoun, formerly of the... Uh, the late Dr. David Calhoun, formerly of uh, Covenant Seminary several decades ago, uh, who 
who explained that he, his friends had asked him to write an introduction to the Word of God, and that's, that's where, where he started with the Institutes. And he explained how Augustine did all this writing at the end of his life. He had um, corrections and retractions. Augustine wrote, I said, you know, this here, but that wasn't the best way to say it. I should have said it this way. He did all of this work. Calvin doesn't have uh, a bunch of uh, redactions or corrections, uh, but it was pointed out it's because he had Augustine to go before him uh, and help him get it right the first time. Uh, So he developed the Institutes, and he spent the rest of his life trying to figure out the right order to present the information in. And what he came up with generally was that you've got two, two kinds of knowledge, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of man, and we talked a little bit about that, but just for our general awareness, the way he developed and organized the Institutes was into the knowledge of God the Creator in book one, book two is of man the created, book three is of God the Redeemer, and book four is of man the redeemed. So that's a great organizational structure for us to understand our theology. And when we talked last week, and I'll, and I'll recap this week, of the knowledge of God, it is, uh, we talked about that there is a God, that he is knowable, and he has revealed himself. We talked about how some of that is in our minds already, and some things come into our minds uh, from the outside. And we know that there is general revelation and special revelation, and that is intermixed, too, with both our knowledge of God and man. This idea that what we see in nature, the uh, visible things that are created, tell us of the invisible attributes of God. And we need both because what is revealed to us in general revelation is only enough to condemn us. It's only enough to convict us of our sin. It doesn't explain to us how we actually get saved. So then we, we mentioned some things about the knowledge of man. I mentioned three last week. I'll add a fourth for completeness this week. That what we need to know about man is where we came from, where we are, what condition we're in, what the remedy is, and where we're going. And we learn these things in Scripture, that we were created by God. We wouldn't know a lot about where we came from if we didn't have Genesis telling us and other Scriptures that corroborate the the message there. And as for our condition, uh, I think you'd have to be insane whether or not you're saved or have read Scripture Uh, to not have an idea of what our condition is, that it is a broken condition. Something is wrong with us and with our world. But the Bible clarifies what that is that's wrong, that God made us upright, but we've sought out many inventions, that he made us innocent, but we fell in Adam's sin. And so now we're in a fallen condition. We've moved from the state of innocence into the state of, of sin and misery, and we know that means we're under the wrath and curse of God, and that we face eternal damnation, and so then what is the remedy 
and the answer we find in Scripture is the one and only way of salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, the fourth is, where are we headed? And that is the province, really, of eschatology, the movement of redemptive history to the consummation, to resurrection, either unto life or unto eternal damnation. So those are the critical pieces of information that we need to know, no matter who we are. And it does... There are other things that we need to know to be uh, productive and useful people in the world. But that's what we need to know for salvation. And I would also make uh, a distinction, and we'll, we'll probably hammer on this a little bit through this morning's lesson, but it's distinction between what it is or how it is that we're saved and how it is that we then live after we're saved. So we mentioned that Scripture is the first stop for us to find the uh, information that we need uh, when we ask this question, not only how do we know, but what is it that we need to know? And it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we find truth in Scripture, and that is the true memories and the true ordering of those memories. Because we talked about, again, how what knowing is, is ordering your memories rightly. Scripture gives us this shared, objective, true memory. And it's not just your memory or just my memory. It's our memory as Christians. And so we participate in that with all Christians of all times. But Scripture also can correct our individual experiences. Our individual memories and experiences matter too. But Scripture has to correct them, right? Because our hearts are deceitful and wicked. And we don't know ourselves truthfully, and we can't know others either. There's a a point in the New Testament where it says Jesus didn't disclose himself to man because he knew what was in them, right? But we don't have that kind of insight. Uh, We do, in a general sense, the scriptures construe for us what it is that's in us and in others. But that's that's what scripture is doing. It's it's filtering, uh, and and it's correcting, and it's building up, renewing, our minds, uh, because the Word of God doesn't come back void. And so it is organizing for us our own memories and putting them in, in order. So that's moving from information to knowledge and moving from knowledge to Christian living. I brought up Jonathan Edwards last week uh, in his book, The Freedom of the Will, a foundational discourse on moral agency. So we've got three books there. The Confessions is a work of profound insight. The Institutes, a work of precise organization. And then The Freedom of the Will, a discourse on moral agency. And you go from information, insight, to knowledge, well-organized, to action as moral agents. Uh, in his human life, uh, according to Edwards, I'm appealing to Edwards here because this is a, a pretty deep truth and Uh, It would take a long time to work this out and convince you if you don't believe it already. So I'm going to leave that to Edwards and to your reading of Edwards. But he he tells us that in his human nature and life, Jesus demonstrates how knowledge, and I'm summarizing, leads to a clear understanding of who you 
are and what your purpose is and faithfully living that out, as Jesus gains a self-awareness of his messianic role through Scripture, his parents' testimony and the witness and confirmation of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Uh, so it's a, it's a pretty bold claim on Edward's part of how Jesus knew who he was. But we see that pattern that Jesus knew who he was through the knowledge he gained from Scripture and the testimony of, his, of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And he turns that into action. Pastor Proctor has... Uh, that's our, the next theologian, right? Augustine, Calvin, uh, Edwards, and then Pastor Proctor has been saying he's not, he's not preaching uh, to us an ethic but a person, right? And I really love that uh, because that's, that's where I want to go with this. I'm going to turn a phrase from Calvin. Uh, the scriptures are the mute Christ and Christ the living word. And uh, Paul is, is maybe more dramatic. He, he really says that the scriptures are death and condemnation, but Christ is life and salvation, that Jesus doesn't just bring you to life, he brings the scriptures to life too. And that's what we're called to do as individual Christians. And that's, that's how we get from knowledge to Christian living. Paul, uh, I think, gives some examples about this, and I want to be clear, because it's always, a, it's always a difficult topic to talk about salvation and works and how do they fit together, uh, but we'll just be real clear about what the gospel is first. We're saved by faith alone, okay? but not a faith that is alone. When we are given the gift of faith, we're also given uh, the gift of works that we're to walk in, as we learn in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, right? It says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to walk in works that he's prepared beforehand for us to walk in, right? Not only has he predestined us to salvation, but he's predestined us to uh, Christian living. One of the examples we see in Scripture, or the, the analogies in Scripture that we see, is that we're living letters. And I think that's uh, really neat to think about. Because Jesus, what is, what is he? He's, he's the one that is sent from God, right? God the Father sends him. He's been sending his word all along through the prophets, right? And the angels ministering the word to Moses. And at last, he actually sends a living letter, the letter of, that is Jesus Christ, right? And in Jesus, you see him living out what is, what is taught in Scripture, right? What it actually looks like, how it actually feels. And Paul, uh, or, or the apostles more generally, are also the sent ones, and that's what apostle means, right? the ones that are sent. The apostles are the letters that Jesus sends out into the world. 
again, living examples of what has been written down. And, and that's where Paul, in 2 Corinthians particularly, he's got this theme that runs through the whole book of living letters and the difference between uh, the false apostles and the, the ways that they try to gain power and dominance over the people that they're uh, working with, and the true apostles uh, himself, who's submitting to Jesus Christ, faithfully witnessing to Jesus Christ, and pointing everybody to not his authority, but Jesus Christ's authority. And one of the uh, complaints that are brought against him by the false apostles is that he's so bold in his letters, but when he comes among us, he's meek and of his words are of no account, right? Um, and Paul says in other places that he doesn't come and try to win you over with uh, rhetoric and with sophistry and with lofty arguments, right? But with simple uh, truths that he's stuttering out, right? And he tells them in Second Corinthians, well, yes, my letters are bold and they sound strong and powerful and like, oh my goodness, who is this guy? But when I come among you, I am living out what I wrote to you. So the way that Paul lives out what he wrote is somewhat surprising to people. It doesn't necessarily look the way they thought. But that's how Jesus was too, right? When he starts to teach the apostles that he has to suffer go to Jerusalem, suffer, and then be put to death, Paul pulls him aside and he's like, hey, remember I just said a few verses ago, you are the Christ, the son of the living God? That means that like David, you're going to come in and throw off the yoke of the Romans, you're going to bring in a powerful kingdom, and you're going to rule, and I'm going to be right by your side. I can be your uh, your general, maybe, right? Uh and Jesus is like, no, get behind me, Satan. Um, he is living out what God has been saying all along. He's a living letter. And James, James, I think, is um, a good, uh, good place to go for this, too. And I would note, stereotypically, Lutherans often... Uh, are accused of being uh, against the law, antinomians. Presbyterians are accused of being legalistic. And hopefully we can both avoid that. Historically, uh, Luther wasn't sure James was even a canonical book because he didn't like the emphasis that there was on being on, on the law and it's how it fits. And I think that's it's a difficult thing to try to explain. You're not saved by works, but works are the fruit of your salvation. James says in chapter 1, verses 20 through, through 25, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, 
being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So last, uh, last week we talked about the lamp that shines once the connection between the plug and the outlet is made and God's saving work is like that and that it connects us to Christ and his life-giving power is what flows through us and produces that fruit of the Spirit. And we shine in new life. Second Corinthians uh, 4.6 It says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Remember, Augustine quotes David frequently, in your light I see light. So God has shined the light into our hearts, and now we're supposed to shine reflecting his glory like Moses' face. And it brings us back to the verse, Daniel 12.4, that I co-opted into the beginning uh, as an apt description of the information age. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Okay, But the arrival of the information age is not the fulfillment of this verse. The knowledge that the angel is talking about is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the going to and fro is the spread of his gospel. And the two preceding verses, as it happens in Daniel, uh, explain this. They describe what this knowledge does. In Daniel 12, 2 through 3, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So so this knowledge produces wise people, and those wise people shine like the brightness of the sky above. And Jesus explains that too in Matthew 5.16. In the same way, he says, let your... Light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what I'm trying to do here, and I don't know how successful I'm being, is to try to jump from information and knowledge to Christian living. And I feel like it's, it's almost like you're walking by a creek in a wood and you, you're just trying to find the spot where the creek is narrow enough and the water's shallow enough and there's a few stepping stones so that you can hop it across. We're going to try to jump over into Christian living from, from thinking through how we know what we know and what we ought to know and what that produces in our life. So again, the, the great theologian, Pastor Proctor, uh, talked last week about conveniently enough, accountability and support as distinctives of the Presbyterian way and really of the Christian faith, right? Because we're not Christians on our own. We are Christians in community. And in that community, we support one another. We bear one another's burdens. And we also uh, hold each other accountable. Uh, So Philemon chapter, uh, well, not chapter, it's one chapter. 
but the book of Philemon. Uh, if you're not familiar, it's a, it's a fantastic book. Um, I don't want to say Paul is passive-aggressive in, in the book, but there is a lot of tension in what he says in Philemon. Uh, Onesimus has run away. He was a servant. And he, he lives with Paul for a bit, and Paul sends him back, and he wants him to go back to his job. Uh, and he writes a letter to go with him to Philemon, explaining how he wants him to take him back, forgive him, be loving to him. He wants them to correct their master-servant relationship uh, that, that neither of them was doing very well. Uh, and so he sends him back, and it's interesting, because one of the things he says to Philemon is, uh, he says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So talk about accountability. I think it's interesting to think um, that your teacher, Paul, right, or your pastor wants something back from you, right? Um, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. And of course, what he wants is he just wants him to love like he's supposed to, right? And then to work out his, his uh, employership over uh, Onesimus in that love. Uh, but that's, that's a piece of that accountability that I think ought to give us a desire to have a little holy ambition. Um, we, we should want to provide some kind of return to Jesus, ultimately, right? For the love that he's poured out on us. We should have aspirations for our sanctification and for how we go about seeking to glorify God. We are looking in Scripture and learning about who we are and what our purpose is, and when we find out that we're the children of God and our purpose is to glorify Him, it should be moving us to action. Yes. Yes, and bearing good fruit in, in everything we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, right? And when you work, do not work as man-pleasers, but as unto the Lord. So when, when we're born again, so again, we're not saved by works, right? But we are saved to works, and when we're born again, it's just the beginning of our lives in Christ. So now we need to go out and live. We need to get our memories organized so that we have knowledge that we can turn into action. And we need to be in Scripture because that's what helps us to do that. And it helps us to filter out uh, what we need to to categorize. And again, this is, this is how are we living in the information age where we're inundated with social media, and websites, and blogs, and magazines, and television, and on and on and on. We're, we're wanting to be able to make sense of that world. And 
use, let, let the Holy Spirit use us uh, to bring forth fruit for the kingdom. So, I would point us to two passages. One is very familiar, I think. Proverbs 31 is this beautiful description of what the Christian woman uh, looks like. And it's not, a, it's not so much a go-do-this as, as an outcome, right? She's living, in, she's living out her faith, and what is the response of other people? They see her doing this, right? It's not go do this and you'll be saved. It's she's saved and they see her doing this. And they describe her this way. And the way they describe her is they rise up and call her blessed, right? There's an interesting passage I would submit to you, Job chapter 29, that is uh, a good description of the same sort of thing for a Christian man. Uh, and if you, if you just read through that, it's the same kind of thing. It's not a go do these things. It's this is the response of the world to a man who is living his Christian walk. Uh, so Job 29 and Proverbs 31, too long to read right here, but I would commend it to you to, to take a look at uh, and see what that looks like. But also, two, uh, two books that could be uh, of use that I found useful. Uh, one is called Do More Better, and one is called What's Best Next? So those are both really good books uh, in terms of helping me uh, organize information and try to deploy that into um, a sanctified way of living. Obviously, a lot of... A lot of work to go there. Uh, so with that, I'll just wrap up with some phrases. Maybe maybe some of these will be good. Maybe some of them will work and stick, and maybe they're too, uh, too cliche. We'll see here. But one is, we aren't working to save ourselves. We're saved to work. And the other is, don't think works righteousness. Think righteousness works. Uh, so, okay, somebody tweet those, and we'll see if, if they're any good. All right, with that, we'll pray and move to fellowship. Oh, question. So I think the question is, are we too heavenly minded to be any earthly good? Uh, and that's how I've heard it put before. I think there's a couple of ways to answer it. One is, we are a local expression of the church. I think it would be difficult for anybody here to speak authoritatively for the whole church. 
Um, so I would, I would point to two things, I think, as a suggestion. One would be, um, we're, we're saved, and the church is saved, by the work of Jesus Christ. We are certainly not doing enough, and we can certainly never do enough. Uh, at the same time, the church is Jesus' church. Uh, it's God our Father and the church our mother. I've, I've read, I don't remember where, but it was a good, um, a good admonition to be very careful about how we judge the church. Uh, because it's Christ's bride and he is working through it. He's empowering it to do uh, what he wants it to do. And he is 100% successful in doing with his church what he wants to do with his church. So um, it is with fear and trembling that we would bring any critique of the church. Uh, not that critique cannot be brought. Uh, so I think I would. I want those kind of two things. No, we're never doing enough. Don't, careful about critiquing the church. And then I would offer just one other personal piece, and that is, um, I personally uh, am a fan of the church, the Presbyterian Church in in the in, in America, and in, in the. You know what I'm trying to say here. Not saying the particular <laughs> Reformed Presbyterian Church. Uh, um, I've been to a lot of them, and I think they do an admirable job. Um, I think that one of the mistakes we make uh, between, as you've given as an example, the Catholic Church and the Presbyterian Church is thinking that one thing is more important than another and, and maybe getting that wrong. Meaning, is the March for Life more important than um, cooking your kid dinner and sitting them down and reading the Bible. We could come up with a bazillion different examples of those things, but I think sometimes we probably aren't uh, discerning that correctly. Uh, and, and it could be the faithfulness of, of church on Sunday, the faithfulness of family worship, the faithfulness of reading the Bible, um, Maybe that's more important than an annual march. Or maybe you need both. But I think somewhere in there you could, you could get after the question a bit. Does anybody else want to try to answer that? Uh, Elder Scott or Pastor Proctor or any other thoughts? Or the young lady in the front? I think that's a valid uh, insight, and I think, too, if you read throughout not just Revelation but the entire New Testament, the picture that you get of what is called the church is, is a little bit sad, right? Um, throughout the whole New Testament, it's, it's, you're thinking, oh, we're not like that. And it's like, wait a second, this is the church. He's like, hey, stop doing this, stop doing that, you're doing this, right? And it's, uh, it is pretty, it's like, oh, my goodness.
it, it, was, it was a collection of letters that John Calvin sent. Uh, and so the book is a compilation of those letters. Um, and it's surprising. It's excellent church history and surprisingly applicable to today. So let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time and pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit who uh, empowers us to will and to do for your good pleasure, that we would rest in the salvation we have in Christ and go and live energetically uh, the Christian way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.